Hello, I'm Joss Stone. Thanks for joining me for a cup of happy. I spent the last few years singing my songs in every country in the world and been lucky enough to meet incredible people from all walks of life. What really struck me is that no matter where we are, we're all on the same mission. We're all just trying to find our version of happy. So with this podcast, I'm going to be speaking to a whole host of people to dig deeper into the what, why, and how of this emotion we call happiness. I hope that with these conversations, you discover something to help you on your own quest for happiness, possibly change your mind on a few things, and along the way, share a good old laugh with me and my guests. Today, I'm speaking to a lovely man and a genuine genius, a man who has been astonishing us on TV for years and whose book, Happy, is the subject of a lot of today's conversation. Here is the wonderful Darren Brown. Hello, Darren. Hello. How are you? Hi, Joss Stone. Very good indeed. This is nice. I'm so excited to talk to you. Very excited to talk to you. I'm so far away, but we can do this using technology. I have been watching you for years. My whole wow. family have a have a big opinion on what I should be asking you today. Oh, that's it's nice. brilliant. Okay. It's so <laughs> funny. They've been texting me, my mum, my dad, my brother. They're like, ask him this, ask him that. Because we've uh, all been watching you and we're all very intrigued by your magical ways. Oh, that's really nice. I look forward to hearing what the Stone family have to ask. Well, some of them you don't want to know. No, no, no. Like no. my dad has the worst questions. Oh, God, they're embarrassing. So I would never. Um, <laughs> Excellent. But, it's nice to chat with you on in the lockdown. I mean, we're all in the lockdown, kind of. I guess we're we coming out of it now. How has it been for you? I'm, I'm sort of, sec- I'm secretly quite enjoying it. Certainly, some aspects of it. And I sort of find when I talk to people, I hear that a lot. So I wonder whether that's more common than anybody likes to admit to. I think it's. I'd rather have enforced isolation than enforced socialization um i'm getting on with writing i'm kind of just organizing stuff in my life that i wouldn't have normally had a chance to so i'm i'm and also i realize i'm not missing things as much as i thought i would like i thought i'd really miss restaurants and Mm. cafes and that kind of world and i haven't so it's kind of interesting seeing what you can actually very happily just sort of Mm. get on with that you thought made you happy and actually turns out not to made such a difference actually they don't yeah it's kind of hard work going out i've realized Hard it's work. Kind of it's kind of hard work going out, you know, out, out. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Are, are you a, normally a social butterfly? Are you, are I don't, you... I mean, I think I'm good at doing that because hmm. that's, I don't know, it's just part of being an entertainer, I guess. Yeah. You know, because so you do that naturally in your, in your everyday. So I like to have people around the house more than going out. <laughs> yes, exactly. You know what I mean? It's like, oh, it's in your space and you can smoke inside, you exactly. know, stuff like that I enjoy, but... Yeah, the restaurant side of things. It's like, I, I kind of want to go to a restaurant now just just to have a nice little, I don't know, an out experience. But really, I haven't missed it at all. No, and happy. I found there's an interesting thing that's starting to happen. That there's a couple of, um, like, there's a little tailor's, a tailor's mm. shop close to me where I often, you know, I used to take my clothes in and things, as you do, to tailor's. Mm. And they've just reopened. And I went back in and I was really filled with this affection for the, I mean, they're lovely anyway. They've always been really friendly. But there was just something about, we've all just been through this weird madness together. Right. And now you've come back and you're doing your thing and we're all stepping back into our sort of roles very quickly. And it's all sort of very familiar and normal, but equally really, really strange really because we've all odd. been through this. But also it's like a level of kind of empathy and a sort of uh, mm-hmm. a kind of an understanding Correct. and a, a sharing thing that goes so much deeper than 
the sort of customer you know, professional tailor thing. It was a really lovely experience. And it's kind of nice to be reminded of those things sometimes, isn't it? That kind of deeper mm. level of sort of humanity that, you know, we just we just forget normally. And I'm sure, I'm sure we'll, we'll forget it very quickly. We'll all go back to... Yeah, know. I think that's happening already. Yeah. Yeah, so as far as um, gigs go, I guess you're in the same boat I am, you know, because we have to bring people together. That's our job. A lot, a lot of it is... Is that it's bringing people into one space, and yes, you have a show coming up. So what's going to happen with that? Well, we yeah we postponed it. We were ready to go into a theatre uh, and begin the day they. Uh, it was like the Friday. Then the, then the lockdown happened. We were going to start on the Monday. So oh, this no. we've delayed it till February when it looks like hopefully February next year. Oh my it gosh. is called Showman. Where, I should say. Oh good. Tem- can I can I hear about it, or is it a secret kind of mad magical? Don't tell anyone situation. Oh, they're always they're always plenty secret because I, I swear <laughs> the audience is secrecy every night, so no one talks about it. But um, yeah, it's it's a UK tour. Uh, so the last show I did was on Broadway, so not not far from where you are. Oh. Um, which uh, that was, and I got back from that just before, just before this all kicked off, which of course was mad. Um, and particularly you feel it out there. The whole New York is so feels so geared around theatre. It's such a huge part of its DNA. Um, It must be very strange out there. So, yes, I've sort of just had that. And then my my next tour is is February. But anyway, we're not here to talk about my tour. So it's been moved. It's all, everything's just been kind of plonked from one year to the next, which is fine. Um, But, okay, okay, so the lockdown thing, it kind of links me into something I want to ask you, but I might sound stupid when I ask. Not at all. So um, I read your book, and sometimes I read it out loud. (laughs) I read (laughs) it out loud because it makes me feel highly educated, (laughs) you know. Excellent. I love love how you put your words together. And I've learnt new words, by the way, um, (laughs) reading this book. But it's beautiful the way that you... The way that you write is just, wow, it kind of flows in a lovely way. And you oh, talk you. about um, how much you studied other people's writing. Yeah. And you talk about um, stoicism. And I don't really know what that is. But uh, I think from what I understand, from what mm. I'm gathering, it may help in a lockdown situation. Is it the stoic people or the stoic idea mm-hmm. um, helps you to be okay with the scenario that you're in? That's a very good way of putting it. So, yeah, so stoicism was a very popular school of philosophy, a school of thought that was, it was kind of the big one before Christianity took over and kind of exploded onto the scene. It was it a religion? It, no, it wasn't a religion. It was kind of, um, there were lots of schools of thought around the time of the ancient Greeks and Romans. They were very interested in what, what it is to live a good life. And then, of course, once Christianity kind of stepped in, once religion took over that question then it answered all our ideas of what a good life is supposed to be because that was something to do with your relationship with God. But before oh. that, there, were, there was a much more secular sort of investigation as to what the good life might mean. And there were lots of really interesting ideas, some of which have sparked things later on in sort of modern times. And Stoicism has stuck around, partly because it was so popular. So actually the early Christians, when they were trying to win people over, they had to appeal to Stoic ideas to kind of win those, win those Stoics over. So what it means is, and you're right, it's about making peace with the way things are. So it's it's the opposite of what most self-help is nowadays. And it's certainly changing what, a lot of things. Yes, yes, it is. And, and, and what we tend to be told by that industry nowadays is that if you, if you believe in yourself enough and if you set your goals 
well enough and if you you know do your dream board and you have a vision and you ask the universe and you commit to all of these things that the universe will somehow provide yes, do it or, for you yes. we'll do it yeah, we'll do it for you or that <laughs> you just we'll sit least, there and have a nice cup of tea and it will all happen and it will yeah exactly as if a as if the universe cares and b <laughs> as if things go according to our plans now what the greeks and perhaps more so the, the Romans who came kind of after the Greeks and really formed Stoicism in, in, its, in its most useful sense in this context. They had a great sense of tragedy, obviously. You know, we, famously, the Greeks had these tragedies. And what that meant is they were very keyed into the idea of fortune and fate and things not turning out always how we want. So they had a greater respect for that. And there's an image that I kept finding throughout history in one form or another, which I think is a much more useful model than the self-help optimistic, believe-in-yourself kind of model. And just to say that what's wrong with that model, because it sounds great, whole optimistic, believe-in-yourself thing, what's wrong with it is that life will eventually, at some point, is going to let us down in some ways, that we are going to find times that are going to be hard. Mm -hmm. At the moment, you know, we're in, we're in difficult times, or there may be things that are more personal or tragedies that we're going to find ourselves in. And the trouble with the believe-in-yourself optimistic model is that when that happens, as it inevitably in some way will, it doesn't really serve us. All it does is tell us that we must have failed in some way because we've got nothing else to fall back on. Maybe we didn't believe in ourselves enough. Maybe we've done something wrong mm -hmm. along the way. And then we're adding a feeling of failure to a bunch of problems we've already got. So the stoic model, which I think is a much more helpful model, is to say, well, if you imagine like there's two lines of a graph. So you've got on one axis of that graph, you've got all the things you want to achieve in your life, your goals, your aims, your whatever. And then on the other axis, maybe going along the bottom now, the x-axis, is all the stuff that life just throws back at you. It's all the stuff that is going to go wrong and just fate, fortune, whatever you want to call it. Mm -hmm. And actually what we live is an x equals y line. So a diagonal, right, between the two. And we yeah, kind of yeah, meander yeah. around that line. And sometimes we're on top and sometimes we're not. Sometimes life uh, is having the upper hand and there's things we can't do anything about. So they were all about how do you make your peace with that line? How do you move in a kind of easy accordance with the fact that that's how reality is? That's basically, you're right, what Stoicism, Stoicism. Is, is saying. And okay. they that had sounds some, very reasonable and very logical. It, well, I think it is. I think it is, a, it is very reasonable. And what it allows for is a kind of a dose of a kind of mm -hmm. tactical pessimism mm -hmm. into the mix so they're very good at saying things like lower your expectations <laughs> oh no it sounds horrible but of course <laughs> that's you think awful <laughs> it is but awful no, I, I guess um i guess it's it is more logical it's more realistic it doesn't have to be pessimistic it can be realistic realism is kind of pessimism isn't it sometimes? well yeah and well, it can all sound a little bit sort of uh, negative but they're not and first of all the stoics were real movers and shakers they were politicians they were dealing with these hellenic wars that were going on so the whole world was in you know strife and they were they were in the middle of a difficult chaotic time so these were real actual very practical strategies for life so here's here's what they said he was at the, the basis of their thought was to say first of all that happiness was a sort of tranquility right so not not a sort of complacence complacency or a zombie-like tranquility but just a kind of robustness a psychological robustness that gives you a tranquil and solid sort of soul so in other words it's about avoiding anxiety and excess right. sort of frustration and so on um even that's like a big thing because that means it's something tangible. You can actually go, okay, that's what it means because it's hard enough defining what mm -hmm. happiness means, isn't it? And mm -hmm. and that's part of the problem. You know, we think it's just this thing that we should have. And I guess we need a little bit of dark to be able to see the light. Now, I remember reading something in the book and also from what you've just said 
about anxiety, how it teaches you to avoid anxiety to try and be happier right yeah well there's there's two there's i think anxiety is actually very important um but we need a we bit we do need a bit of, we know? do need a bit of yeah. it yeah what the, the what the, what stoicism is very good for is reducing anxiety so to talk a bit about mm. how you put what can sound like a bit of a sort of grumpy sort of philosophy <laughs> of the practice what they said is there are things in your life that you're in control of and there are things in your life that you are not in control of. Mm -hmm. And if you try to control things that you are not in control of, you're going to make yourself anxious and frustrated, which makes sense. Miserable. Right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and given that their model was about avoiding anxiety and, and, and frustration, that was their understanding of happiness, then they were all about not trying to control things that you cannot control. So that makes mm -hmm. sense. And then the next stage of that is to realize the only things you are in control of are your thoughts and your actions. And this is a, this is a big thought of theirs. Everything else, what other people do and what they think and how things turn out and so on, they are not things that you are in control of. And the trick is to decide that all of those things are fine. However they turn out is fine. And all you need to focus on and worry about and put your attention and energy into are your own thoughts and your own actions, what you get up to, what you do and what you think about. Everything else is fine. Okay. And to let that idea settle in, in terms of like the everyday things that get to us and make us feel upset and worried and angry. Generally, those things are fine. What we're doing is making up a story about those things. We're, we're telling ourselves a narrative about what's going on that's making us upset. We're forming like a cause and effect and we're... We're, we're, we're adding drama we're, into we're it. We're adding drama. We're replaying it. We're, we're forming yeah. this narrative that's just making us feel bad. Um, mm. Whereas what the Stoics would say is, well, look, what, what if you just decided that that thing was fine and... Looked sometimes you can sometimes so for example, like if you're playing a game of tennis, right? This is a good way of understanding things like success in stoic terms, like a much better way of approaching success. If you go into a game of tennis thinking I must win, which a lot of the sort of self-helpy world tells you to do, focus on winning and visualize yourself winning. It's not as fun though when you get competitive, I find. It depends whether you're competitive or well, not. Well, it isn't as much Go fun for exactly this reason, because it can, it can make you anxious. Mm. The trouble is you're trying to control something yeah. you're not in control of, right? Which is the outcome right. of the game. They would say, right. well, just decide that you are going to play as well as you possibly can right to the best of your abilities and then if the other person starts to beat you you don't feel like you're failing you don't feel anxious and you're going to play better too and it's the same thing with with success with getting i don't know promotions or getting ahead and so on mm. if you focus on doing your best and which you can really commit to. Uh, you can really commit to trying to create change in the world and trying to change the world. This isn't about any sort of complacency, but you're not going to commit yourself to an outcome which may have nothing to do with you. It may be an outcome that happens, you know, a generation later in terms of, again, matters of social injustice. So you're, you're just, you start to differentiate between what bits am I actually in control of, my thoughts, my actions, and what's on the outside, in, in which case I don't need to distress myself about how those Upset things are myself, going. Yeah. yeah, It's a really simple but brilliant model that starts to kind of expand out as you let it sort of feed into different areas of your life. I wonder often if people, I don't know whether enjoy is the right word, but people move towards that um, outrage and anger. I wonder if it's addictive because I don't think people enjoy it. That is the wrong word. But I notice, you know, every time say my boyfriend turns on the news mm. perfect example especially at the moment oh my god mm. he gets so annoyed <laughs> but he does it every day yeah he turns on the news every single day and there is nothing he can do about that's it that's the thing and um, it? yeah. it's out of his control yeah. and you know he's not the only one I, I do it as well in in other 
little directions in my life. But why do we do that? That's mental. Well, yes, and that's part of the problem of the news um, is that it and social media, and social, Facebook, yeah, all of that. A lot of these things instill in us a kind of a, a fear or a worry that's completely out of proportion to our ability to do mm. anything about those right. things. Um, so a good stoic move is to it's pay to, less <laughs> attention to the news. Yes, uh, <laughs> it's to just ignore it and go. Well, I can't do nothing about that, but. You still want to help. Exactly, exactly. You know? But what, what you're doing, this is only about reducing unnecessary anxiety and frustration. Again, the Stoics were people that changed the world. So Marcus Aurelius, who was like the greatest philosopher king ever, mm -hmm. um, was one of, he's one of the big names in Stoicism. Mm -hmm. So it's not about going, oh, it's fine, I won't do anything about it. It's not, you, may, you, may, you might spend your life committed to change, but you're only concerned it. with what you can do, your thoughts, uh, your actions, constructively trying to change things. What you're not committing yourself emotionally to is what other people do in the face of that. So you're going Being to approach that with a sort, of, mm. a sort of dignity and a kind of a calm, what other, how they choose to respond, uh, the right. effect that it's all happening, because it may not happen until a generation later. So you, mm -hmm. in terms of the reaction you get back, you're going to treat that with a kind of a calm indifference. But meanwhile, yourself you can approach creating change or correcting things that mm. need to be corrected as, 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 much as, you, as much as you like. I imagine this is how the Queen is. I imagine she's like this all the time. Yeah. <laughs> and I model everything I think this is how she lives. <laughs> just like, okay, right, well, that's terrible, but we're just going to move on. Let's have a cup of tea and plan something that's going to be better. Perhaps. And, and that is the caricature of Stoicism is that it can be like that. But I think it shouldn't be. I think particularly nowadays, these are times when we're really seeing the importance of anger sometimes and the importance of change and the importance of not mm. being indifferent about things. Mm. But it's again, it's then how that gets channeled. Like anger is on its own is sometimes helpful, but it's more useful if it gets channeled into something that's constructive yeah there's another little bit i wanted to talk to you about anger and hurt yeah. the chapter you speak about this king oh my god darren it's horrendous how you write this story in here i mean it's amazing but it's like oh okay anyone that gets this book please just <laughs> prepare yourself for these pages i don't watch horror movies um because i can't have it in my brain right i can't have the image <laughs> i just don't i don't want it in there um and when i was reading this chapter yes. the story about what the king does to his friend mm. it's oh my god horrendous the way that you write it darren i was looking away from the pages as if it was a tv I was like, oh, oh no, I can't. Oh God, but I still have to continue reading this. So it was an example of somebody that's very angry mm. um, that destroys one of his friends in the most disgusting, heinous way possible yes. and achieves nothing apart from being a horrible wanker exactly. and, yeah. and ruining someone's life. And then a few pages later, it talks about um, protests. And we're having a lot of these at the moment. Mm. And um, how Martin Luther King didn't use anger. He actually was trying to quell anger in order to be productive. Yeah, there is, there's, a, um, there's a historical sort of precedent, I guess, for, what, for, for, for where these things work really well, which is when anger is channeled. I mean, there is, there is, of course, a time for just anger and raw anger. And it's up to the rest of us to stop and yeah, pay decide and, when to turn that off well no but also to pay attention to it and to 
do mm. the work of finding the, the nuance and, and undoing some of that, you know, undoing some bit ourselves. Um, so that's kind of up, up to us to do something constructive with that and not just go on with it at all. And we can't be constructive if we're in a state of anger. No, well, that's it. Anger is more effective when it becomes channeled into something constructive. So Martin Luther King, Dr. King, for example, when he was creating this massive civil rights movement, he didn't talk about anger and criminal language. He spoke about it in civil duty language, spoke about... Like they owe us. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. The, the, the black community was paid, like being given a bad check. Um, yeah. And what that does, which is kind of in, sort of interesting, is that it, it's a model of identity politics, which draws a circle around everybody mm-hmm. and says some of us are being treated badly. Some of our brothers and sisters are being treated unfairly. And that is a different model from a common enemy model. So this, this is a kind of language that comes from a guy called Jonathan Haidt, talks about these two contrasting models. So a common humanity is you draw a circle around everybody and you say mm-hmm. some of us, some of our brothers and sisters, some of our fellow Americans are being treated badly and we appeal then to everybody's sense of a common fairness. And the other model is a common enemy. So you find somebody and you point the finger at them and say they're the bad guy and they're making this happen. Um, mm. That tends to be where you first go when you're angry, but that isn't as effective as appealing to people's sense of shared decency and fairness Care and empathy yeah mm. so it's just it just it is more effective uh, but it's not where we naturally go where we're angry and it needs a sort of a, a transition phase we want the enemy to change that's what you that's what people want right uh, or do they want the enemy to die and disappear well there'll be another one that turns up yeah, yeah. yeah change is important so to get it i don't think i don't know i don't know if um Smashing things up every day is going to get it, but maybe just once or twice a good smash is is is, well, you know, is helpful. Yeah. Just to kind of really hit the point home. Well, there's a place. I think there's a one exactly. There's a, absolutely a place for anger. It's, so yeah, there is a place of for it. Is, of course, and I said it's up to the it's up to the rest of us. I think to appreciate that and respect that, and not mm-hmm. tell them how how to how feel. To, yes, exactly how to do it. It's just yeah. simply a note that is history has shown that once that anger becomes channeled. Constructively, it just tends to create change more effectively, which kind of make, kind of makes sense. Yeah, exactly. So, I wonder about you often with your magical powers <laughs> um, that you claim you do not have. Mm. You speak about how it's I don't know. I feel I feel like you kind of say it's not magic a lot of the time mm. <laughs> because um, you've studied everything and you've explained how you can put someone to sleep if they're in a suggestible state mm. and maybe make them stay in one position. Now you have convinced, and I don't know if I've been tricked, and you can tell me now if I have. Mm-hmm. I've seen things where you have made people feel that they would kill someone. Yes, would kill themselves. And would kill a little tiny kitten. A little tiny kitten. <laughs> Remember the kitten? I don't think I've had anybody think they'd kill themselves. I'm struggling to think of... But in fact, there's been oh, did a you lot... I don't think so. I think even for me, that would be a little... Uh, strike us. A, a, <laughs> a little too far. Strike a, a strange far. note. Maybe I'm thinking of that poor young lad when he thought the world was over. Maybe he didn't want to kill himself, but he felt like I felt like he did want to kill himself. <laughs> so if you can do yeah. that, if you can, if you can kind of... And I know all of these people sign up for it. So, you know, yeah. it's all on them. But if you can do that, don't you just sit there at night sometimes with a glass of wine and think, God, I could totally convince the world to just be like nicer to each other or 
not be racist bastards or yeah, like the opposite. Well, the last show I did on Sacrifice was, was actually was kind of about that. It was before all of this, but actually now is strangely relevant, which was taking a, mm. a racist, very right wing American guy to well, I was thinking if I could get him to lay down his life for an illegal uh, Mexican immigrant. Oh, wow. So it was kind of a bit more on the nose than, than some of the stuff that I've done. So that's, that's on. Did, it, did you manage it? I did. Spoiler alert. But, um, yeah. but you have to, it's, it's still a bunch of surprises on, on the way there. So that's on uh, Netflix. It's called Sacrifice. So, uh, but I think. Did it change his mind for the oh, good or yeah. did he pop out of oh, it? No, no, no. He really, he's, he is a changed man and lovely. That's he's a, awesome. He's sort of a, he's a lovely racist who kind mm. of dislike that but you really kind of like him and it was like it was a really lovely journey i think to mm. to follow but you know in in the midst of all this um i mean it'd be lovely to sit back and feel oh you know you can change the world with cool. these magical powers but the reality is it's not it obviously isn't that simple um i saw something you did with this lady that had had she lost her confidence in piano playing oh yeah Ashani. Um, oh yeah. that was the most beautiful thing oh, was... i cried oh. i thought wow you have given this woman her light back. It was a that was big for her life. Oh, that was lovely. I've, I've yeah, I bumped into her a few times. Her name's Ashani, and it was um, I think the series was Trick or Treat. I think all these things are probably on. It YouTube. was. It was Trick yeah. or Treat, and she got a treat. She got a treat, and the treat yes, was did. that I was going to teach her to play the piano in a kind of <laughs> speed learning kind of way, and then she'd have to give a performance in front of people. And actually, in the end, mm -hmm. it turns out that yeah, she had already known She'd how been to play playing the piano all along. and I made her forget just to rediscover her joy of it. Yes. And that, I mean, I don't know if she was super nervous before, but wow, what a wonderful, imagine if I thought, I can't sing, I never sang a note in my life. And then I get up on stage and it just belt one out. Imagine mm, the joy. It would go, it'd be amazing, wouldn't it? You gave her so much joy. But that, that thing of whether it's playing the piano or singing or, or that there is a, a real thing in life which interferes with the idea, our ideas of happiness, which is we think mm -hmm. We have an idea of what we want to be doing. And then when we get mm. there, A, it's still ourselves looking out. And it's <laughs> yeah. like we've, we have taken ourselves with us, uh, which is always a bit yep. disappointing. And, That's a disappointment. and also we just get, we get used to that thing very quickly and then we're just on to the next thing, which is why, again, the, the modern idea of setting goals, which mm. it's so, I mean, we just all accept that we're supposed to be goal setting all the time. And it can work, I think, well in the short term, but in the long term, it's sort of a disastrous way of living. You know, you, you can spend your life climbing a ladder and then realise you had it against the wrong wall when, when mm. you get to the top. I have a friend who, um, uh, this is quite a, turns out to be a very common story. His idea of what gave you worth, it's quite a, quite a man thing as well. It was sort of, uh, success and building up a company, selling it for a lot of money and, and showing those kind of accomplishments. So he did that. He spent his life building up a big company and then sold it, retired early and uh, and then realised... he was bored. Well, yeah, he had nothing else. Like his whole nothing identity had been caught up with that, that he was became yep. very depressed very quickly. And then as he started to join support groups and things, which sounds ridiculous, but he had to, he realised oh, wow. it was a very common story. So, you know, the whole goal thing is just is really it can suspect. be exhausting it, yeah it really can be yeah i've i've um set myself one too many goals i think in my life and i realized that actually it's just very tiring sometimes you know and when you achieve it it's like okay did that yeah right and that's if you achieve it yeah and if you don't achieve it oh my god it's so depressing yeah and it's horribly depressing <laughs> and a lot of things like that particularly around success they creep up very slowly anyway it's not as if mm. one day you wake up and you're handed something it's a slow incremental thing normally um so mm. it's very hard to gauge when you're there or when it's arrived you just start to compare yourself to different sorts of people and that mm. process never stops
Success should be how happy you are, I suppose. I mean, it depends how you quantify it. There's, there's a very good formula, I think, for success, which I think is, is helpful. If there is a formula, it's this. It's talent plus energy. And I talk about this in the book. So these are both things that are under your control, talent and energy. Your talent, right, how much you develop that. And then the energy, meaning how much you get it out there to be seen you in the world, it. right? So if you have all the talent, mm-hmm. but no one ever sees it, it's not going to do you much good. And if you have all the self-promotional energy, but no talent to back it up, that's not going to do you much it's, good either. Um, no. But the important thing is, those are the only aspects of it you're in control of. And the other parts of it, getting the lucky phone call, or whether you get this gig or that gig or someone else's, those are all things that are nothing to do with you. And if you just decide those things are fine, however they work out and focus on your own stuff, A, you're going to be happier because you're going to enjoy the journey more. And B, you do tend to do better. Things go better. Like that game of tennis, you play better when you're not obsessed with winning. It really works. Uh, And it works in all sorts of, um, I think, different areas of life. It's just, again, distinguishing Mm -hmm. between what are you actually in control of and what are you not and what if all those things you're not are just fine, however they turn out. Yeah. And where do you want to apply it? So you've got, you know, there's success in work. And I think a lot of people think if I'm not successful at work, depending on what culture they're brought mm. up in, they may think if I'm not successful in work, then I can't be successful in happiness. Mm. And that's not always true. You can be successful in family life. Exactly. I think happiness you know, is... You can have beautiful children. Exactly. I think happiness is best seen as a byproduct, which you sort of said earlier. It's, it's, um, if you chase it directly, it's a bit like, you know, the image of a rainbow, which we're often given for happiness. I think it's a really good yeah. image because as you approach a rainbow, it kind of dissipates or it moves further away. And happiness yes. does the same thing. If you see it as a thing that you're kind of entitled to or like it's anything specific, you never touch it. Whereas if you see it as a byproduct, so you don't chase it directly. So, for example, particularly in the second half of life, I think this particularly kicks in around middle age, uh, meaning is very important. And you, and you find meaning in your life by finding something bigger than you and throwing yourself into that thing. That's, that's what finding meaning is. And happiness tends to come from that. So you can tell, like, people that have meaning in their lives but are, momentary, but are sort of unhappy still Mm -hmm. as in going through a low point still consider their lives to be happy when they have meaning and the people that don't have meaning even though they might be happy well they're the ones that you know tend to end their lives there's no purpose there's no purpose yeah it's a a huge thing meaning is a huge thing but we forget about it Mm. because we have happiness thrown at us all the time whereas seeing it as a byproduct of something like meaning is hugely important so that's that's important isn't Mm. it because then suddenly the whole world of religion and those big transcendental ideas which i mean i'm I'm an atheist Mm. so they don't they don't Mm. connect with me in that way but what does connect with me what i do understand from them is they're articulating i think an important human urge which is to find the thing that's bigger than you and particularly in the second half of life it's uh really important is that because maybe a fear of death that is part of it i think uh it's a sort of well it's a bit like you've slain the dragon if that's your first half of life you've gone out and slain the dragon mm-hmm. you've staked your claim in the world and now you're going to rescue the princess to use the kind of like mythical structure of it you you've you've spent the first half of your life going this is me working out what that means St- yeah. you know you've you've done that and then but if you carried on doing that into old age there'd be something a bit off about it so there's a na- I think there's a natural progression to finding, serving something bigger than you, essentially. That is, you know, that's a big thing. And It's a lovely thought, isn't it? It is, well, it's, it's important. I kind of think it's, it's magical, yeah. you know. Um, but I find it so hard to believe because 
I try to, you know, there's a lot of questions. I've been taught to question mm. things. And when it doesn't make sense, then, well, it doesn't make sense. So you kind of keep asking those questions and you come up with two and two is four. It's not five, it's four. Yeah. Um, but it's a shame that it's not five sometimes. <laughs> so do you, I really, you think the idea of meaning? You think the idea of meaning doesn't make sense? Is it no, that? No, I mean, um, I mean the idea of a, some something bigger, yeah. like a like a god, or you know, magical fairies in the garden. Yes, you know, I see what um, you mean. the universe deciding for us how things are going to happen. They always fail. Those ideas always, of course, fail. But but the trick is to separate the specifics from what it's articulating. Because, yeah, you, you're right, of course those things are always a bit silly when you look at them closely, but what isn't silly is finding something that's bigger than you. Because if we don't find yeah. that thing, we look for it in the wrong places, like success and fame and money. Right. Uh, because those mm -hmm. things all look like they're going to elevate our lives and make us happy mm -hmm. and make us feel our life is more than. Whereas actually mm -hmm. they tend not to. They tend to make the bad things worse, some things happier, increase... Yeah. Just, in, just make everything a more intense version of, of, of what it was. So, yeah, we, can find, we might find it in our children. We might find it in our work. We might find it in religion or in some sense of yeah. a bigger vision of things. It doesn't have to be anything mm. that's, like, prepackaged and handed to us. It's just a good, mm -hmm. it's just a good thing to lean into sometimes and realise that uh, when we're just about us, uh, that's fine for a bit, but it does after a while start to run out like when you're in you know when you're in your 20s you tend to be very concerned with who you are what the real you is what you're about mid 30s tend to regret the decisions you made in your mid 20s you start to think well, what, what is is there something that i could do that's that's maybe useful you just things change and then your 40s changes again you start to maybe change your relationships is a big thing that happens at those so there are passages that we sort of naturally follow and it's just good to be aware of those things i think because you it's good to know what what a sort of healthy resonant balanced. yeah and, and what these mm. things sort of resonate with us as we as we move through life and when, when those yeah. things are out of balance i think that's when un, un, unhappiness can happen if we can be extreme yeah and it's awful when it's extreme it, it's overbearing we don't want that yeah Acast recommends LGBTQ plus creators who are making an impact this month and beyond. Tune in for your new favorite show. Hello, I'm Danny Pellegrino, and I host the Everything Iconic podcast. If you're into reality TV and pop culture, subscribe to Everything Iconic, where I break down all of your favorite Bravo shows like The Real Housewives and Vanderpump Rules. I interview celebrity guests and take a bunch of detours along the way. Everyone from Cameron Diaz, Rosie O'Donnell, Daniel Levy, Andy Cohen, Katie Couric, and even Queen icon legend Miss Piggy have stopped by, so you'll never want to miss an episode. You could find me on social media at Danny Pellegrino and subscribe to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, the show with over 23 million downloads on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. Unless it's extreme happiness, that's quite fun. For a bit. But, um, for a bit, and then it gets exhausting, you know, for everyone around well, you. That, that's a, yeah, we have a very a modern understanding yeah. of happiness is very much just about mood, that it should be this yes. euphoric mood. And that's, that's a very modern idea. It used to be tied in with things like virtue, old ideas like that, and, and uh, hmm. the story. I think the story, the story you tell yourself about the life, you know, we are these narrative creatures. The story we're forming is key... Hmm 
to understanding that, which is why meaning is important. Because if you read a book or see a film, it doesn't mean anything. It sort of fails. Meaning is meaning comes out of stories. Meaning comes out of narratives. So you spoke about um, how you can change your story, how you can rewrite it. Yeah, and people that are given a bad story, maybe by their parents or whoever's influencing them, mm. maybe they could recognise it and go, do you know what? I'm going to change it. I, I don't want to be the shy girl anymore. Yeah. Or I don't want to be somebody that gets beaten up every Friday or whatever. That's not going to be my story anymore. I'm going to change it. So obviously it's easier said than done. Yeah. So how, how does one do that? Right. Uh, Carl Jung, was one of the great names in uh, psychoanalysis, said that the, the greatest burden a child has to bear is the unlived life of its parents. It's such uh, a great, yes. great That's idea. So, so, yeah, we tend to be handed from an early age a bit of a script about how the world works, you know, and, and a, like this friend of mine that felt you have to have financial success and achievements to be worth something. We all get some version of that, whether it's you have to be, you have to put other people's needs before yours or you always have to put mm -hmm. your needs first or people are out to get you or some in some form or another, we get handed a, a sort of a vision of how the world works. And it is a fiction. Mm -hmm. We mistake that for reality because that's the only way we can move forward is to take an infinite data source, there's an infinite number of things we could think about and reduce it to a story. Um, yeah, you have to believe but it, like otherwise a, you couldn't move. But in the same way that when we watch a movie, we know that those characters, even if you're watching like a, a biopic of somebody, we know we're seeing a simplified version of that person's real story. That actually, of course, there's always more complexity that isn't going to be right. contained within a neat story arc. And sometimes it's just start to see our own lives a bit like that. Just as in that dose of scepticism that we easily apply to a film. We easily apply it to our friends when they tell us a story about an argument or something they've got involved in. And we listen to it and we kind of think, yeah, this, that's their side. That's their side. There's another side. Yeah. So it's, sometimes it's just it's starting to apply that to our own lives. Um, then we start to write stories for people we've never even met. Yes, well, I wonder what his side was. Well, maybe he thought this. Yes, exactly. I mean, we just, maybe he thought that. We, can't, we just can't get out of it. And it's, it's, you know. it isn't an easy thing to do, but we can start again just to lean into what are these narratives that have been laid down? Are they helpful? Are they, are they things that could be improved upon? Um, and then another way of thinking it is, well, what, what was the story supposed to be before other people came along and derailed it? Is there a place I was supposed to be going? Is, that, is there a more authentic story that could be told? While at the same time, again, it's, it is just a story. It's like a helpful thing, but it's not the truth. Your understanding of reality is never really reality. No. And that's, that's so important, particularly nowadays, so important to remember that because that's mm -hmm. all conflict is. It's two sides thinking they understand reality. And they don't. Neither of them do. They don't. And, and truth comes no. out of dialogue between sides, but we've mm. really lost track of that one. It's facts. Um... Facts or feeling, or I mean, it would be nice if we had both. Yeah, I noticed how people are. Some people are very fact-driven, mm -hmm. and they're like, "Well, hang on, show me the numbers, show me the statistics, and then we'll talk." Yeah, and then other people, if you show them statistics of something that is um, against where their feeling is, yes, they'll say, "You can shove your statistics <laughs> up your ass." <laughs> I really don't care about them. Yeah, um, well, th I don't know if they're two different people or two different conversations well, by the same person. I don't again, know. to mention this guy, Jonathan uh, Haidt, I mentioned a while back, he has this lovely thing where he says, um, well, we're being told something we don't believe, like it doesn't chime with this. We tend to ask ourselves, do I have to believe this? So we're looking out for anything that we anything. don't agree with. And then we go, ah, that's not true. So I'm going to disregard the whole thing. 
Now, we do the opposite when it's something we do instinctively believe. If we're suddenly being reading an article that kind of does support what we think, then we think, can I believe this? Can I believe We look for anything that we can believe. That helps yeah, us. The moment we've yeah. got that, we believe it all. Um, and we do that all the time. That's just, we all we do all that. Do so, yeah. um, but we don't all recognise that we do that. Some people are like, no, I would never. I would never do that. Yeah, we all, <laughs> we all we do We all it. do it all the time. So, so a useful yeah. other question to ask sometimes is, mm. how can this thing be true? And that's a nice way of okay. developing a sort of empathy towards other people's way of seeing things is how, how is this true? How is it true for that person? Because their, their um, belief that it's true is just as strong as my belief that maybe the opposite view is, yeah. is true. So how, how can this be true is, is a, generally a better question than how must I believe this or can I, can I believe it? Both of which trap us in those uh, limited ways of thinking. Yeah, it's mad, isn't it? How our brains work. And how much we can love each other mm -hmm. and hate each other at the same time. Yeah. You know, you can have such a disagreement with people that you love so much. Yeah. That's definitely happening a lot right now. There's, it's, yeah. um, and with the whole Brexit thing, it happened. Yeah. It's anything, really. I think that's, why, that's what takes me back to the whole, do people somehow enjoy the excitement of the argument? I don't know. Because it is, it's not something that people avoid, I don't think. I, it's, it's something that's like addictive or yeah. i don't know it, it strikes me as something that people want to do we get very fired up something something happens in our brains particularly with younger Some people chemical. when we are told there's a a, a a common enemy there's a fight outside yeah. everyone goes oh my god i'm going outside i want to be part of this fight it, it really is <laughs> or when there's when there's the bad guy or go there's it's it just does something and it really fires people up um it's like if you were to say well there's two people outside they're having such a lovely time and they really they love each other so much come on guys <laughs> let's join in it's not <laughs> no one gets up no. they look at you like what sadly not as interesting <laughs> no. i think i'll have another pint please <laughs> what's it like there oh what's God. what's the world like there at the moment and have you had uh, enough, well, enough connection back home to see if there's a to feel a difference i have um there is well i don't know i feel like um, England is imitating America at the mm. moment because it, this the drama started here. Mm. But I mean, there's racism all over the world, yeah. so there is a there's a cause for those marches yeah. everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so it's just I kind of I think it's lovely how we are so we as the English are so kind of in bed with America that we stand with them like that. Mm. Mm. I think that's kind of unique and awesome because we're very far away from each other yeah. there's a massive body of water in between yeah. us and the links are so tight-knit that when something's hurt over here mm. it's felt over there mm. yeah, the issue is so in your face every day mm. you know i hadn't I, I hadn't really met a racist person until i went to the u.s mm. and i remember being totally shocked by mm. it if you're doing a podcast about happiness, you must have traveled the world and seen lots of different ways that happiness kind of shows itself. Yeah. What what sticks out for you? What are the kind of, what have you drawn from or been shocked by? I mean, I've noticed how people link through um, entertainment and art mm. and also through sadness. So if we're talking about this pandemic and how everybody's linked, mm. everyone links in it when they're in a fight against the man. Mm -hmm apart from, of course, the man and his little team. Um, but everyone links and it makes them somewhat happy. And everyone links when they feel something bad happening 
to them. Mm. Um, and they also link within art and music mm. often. Mm. So those that choose to come and, and receive that, they are happy. And in that moment, they are happy. And of course, um, happiness is not something that you can have 24-7, is it? It's just something that you might feel and then it goes mm. away. You might feel it again and then it goes away. Um, but my job is literally purely to make people happy, right? So I walk around the world and I go into places that are, you might call miserable. Mm. So you might kind of think, well, L Libya is bombed every single day and they are so scared mm. all the time. Mm. And you might think that's going to be a really miserable place to go. Mm. Well, I go for a two days so not long enough really to even know anything about anything but i go long enough to know that these people that come to be part of the music if they hear me strumming a guitar in a in a park they all start walking over to the sound of the music and then they all start laughing mm. and then they all start dancing telling me to take off my head wrap because they want to see my hair <laughs> and they're like they're laughing and laughing and their kids are laughing and then their mum is looking at her kid who hasn't laughed for probably a while uh. and that's happy and it's just a minute but that's happy even though it's frivolous and it can go away mm. that's a it's really lovely that's a, such a lovely image um I need to ask you some more questions. Just one question, then I'll go. Because I think I've taken up way dad's, more of your time. Your dad's no, my dad's question was horrible. <laughs> he's so stupid. He basically, he's, <laughs> he's terrible. But he actually wanted me to ask you, and I'll put it in a nice way. Uh, do you ever use your magical ways uh, on romantic partners? Um, no, not really. I, I kind of, I... <laughs> No, I don't. Oh, well, I don't know. Not not knowingly. I think if I, I think generally, the the job that I do. I love the umming and ahhing. Yeah, That's like brilliant. I don't, well, I know what the does he mean? Now. Use? Um, mm, uh, kind of. What do you mean when we say romantic? Um, my job is so that when I'm that guy, it's such a controlling way of being that to be like that in real life would just be horrendous. Mm. So I'm very different in real life. I never think about any of that. I think sometimes mm. it's useful if you're helping somebody or want to be a sympathetic listener those kind of all it, all it is is just getting inside someone else's head and then that can just be about empathy or it can be about control and i don't find the control thing very helpful right. or interesting in in real life it would just be exhausting for you leave everybody. that on the stage yeah. so you can you can tell him that okay i'll tell him that okay um my mum asked do you apply your techniques on yourself and do they do they still work? Oh, that's very... Can you, like, put yourself to sleep? <laughs> well, I'm not a very good asking. sleeper, so maybe that's, that's not a good sign. I can, I'm doing it very well. In yeah. the mirror, Darren, try it in the mirror. Do your thing with the hand and just go, poof, And then sleep, gone. And you'll be out. No, I tell you what is useful, though. That, that stoic thing of um, what if it was fine, when the mm. thing that's annoying you absolutely use that because something will just be going around in my mind it'll be annoying me it'll be slowly building up before i've even realized it then i realize this is ongoing thing that's really bugging me and to just go yeah. how is that fine like how is that thing true how is that just fine so you ask right. yourself that question and you let it it's not about going oh it's fine and moving on it's about going how, no really how is that if that if that thing was just fine how would that be okay i i find with that it's like that feeling of when you were a kid and you thought you had to go to school and you wake up and it's saturday morning and you realize you don't have to go to school because it's saturday mm. and that feeling of relief that comes um so i i absolutely consciously do that 
I use memory techniques and things a lot when I stuff I need oh. to remember. I find them very useful. Um, yes. Uh, is it where you put things in a house? Yeah, there's a few different... Yeah. Uh, it all goes back to the Greeks again. They were brilliant. Um, this is more down to um, all of your reading that you've done. <laughs> all of your yeah, well, it sort of is. But God, they were very good. I'll, just, I'll tell you briefly in case it's useful to Come anybody. On, tell us how to do so, it. I, I have a terrible memory. Okay. Terrible. Well, this, this is useful when you need to learn or remember a series of things like a list or a bunch of things you've got to do so i i really use this at night when i'm falling asleep remember stuff but i don't want to write it down because i'll wake up whatever so have a route that you know really well like maybe around where you live or something so like around a few shops or down the road and there need to be a few things on that route that you can think of without having to think about it like a there's a mailbox or there's a a store or there's a some steps or a hedge or a tree or whatever you need like a bunch of those things mm-hmm. and then when you have something to remember you make a bizarre silly image a memorable bizarre mm-hmm. image that reminds you of that thing like if you've got to i've got to take a suit to the dry cleaners so i think of a bright white gleaming suit that's so bright and clean you can't look at it it has to be this kind of exaggerated silly image and you uh-huh. place it in your first location on that journey somehow interacting with the things. If the first place was a mailbox, you might imagine it, somebody's stuffing this suit into a mailbox and there's all this light, this bright light coming out of the mailbox or whatever. And then you forget about it. And then the next thing you put at the next location. So if you have another thing to remember, you put it at the next location and the next one's at the next one, the next one's at the next one. And you don't have to try and remember any of those things. All you do the next morning is you mentally walk down that journey. And you have to, which is why you have to know the journey really well so you don't even have to think about it. And then you go, why is that? Why is there light... And a white suit coming out the mail. Oh, yeah, I've got to take my suit to the dry cleaners. So oh, the fact that it... Because we're so good at remembering weird, bizarre things Strange that link things. one thing to another that you're just taking mm-hmm. advantage of a very natural process. And it's, it's when you describe it, it all sounds a bit like it's a lot to do, but it isn't. It's effortless. You just you, So you're placing weird, exaggerated images at specific locations. And you could do it around your house. I like to do it around the sort of square where I live. And then you just mentally walk around that mm-hmm. and you find those things are just there effortlessly. It's a really handy thing. It's called the Loki system, which you go back, goes Loki. back to the Greeks. Yeah. Okay, I'll, I'll have to look into that. So I watched you do, I, th- I guess it was memory. Uh-huh. Um, I watched you beat every chess player <gasps> in the room. That was fun. That was amazing. But it, was that memory? Was that just, was that pho- photographic memory? So it was. He went round and beat, the best chess players in the so world. So there were like nine like five chess seconds. players, most of which were like grandmasters and so on. And mm. it's like, I'm going to play them all simultaneously. So you've got them arranged in a circle facing outwards. And I'm going to walk around that circle, do a move with one guy, then go to the next guy, do a move there. And then next one, and sometimes it's their move, sometimes it's my move. It's just, and I go around in a circle playing nine people. And the aim is to beat the group. Um, so to win five out of the nine games, right? Win five, the other four don't matter. I've got to win at least five to beat the group. Um, but I can't play chess very well. It's my chess <laughs> isn't very good. Um, and it's a... Um, this, might, this might be really hard to explain, but I'm sure, I'm sure your listeners will, will, will get it. So yeah. if you imagine just have... This is how you do it. It's how you play chess against two players at the same time, right? Uh-huh. Uh, with the same idea, without really having to be able to play chess at all. You play them off against each other. So if you imagine you've got two players and they're sat facing apart from each other, so they can't see each other, you go to the first table where they're going to make the first move. So they're playing white. So they play their first move. Now, you don't respond to it. You just remember what they did. Yes. And then you go to the next room where you go to the other player and that's the move that you play on their board to open the game, right? You just copy what you've seen the other guy do. And then you see how they respond. 
and then you do that move back on the first guy, right? <laughs> so you're actually, you're just like translating the moves back and forth. You're not really playing. So they're playing they're each playing other. Each you're other. not playing. Exactly. So I did the same thing. But you thing. then have to remember all of that. You've got to remember it. So I just did like a giant version of that. So I've got them round in a, a circle. They're each, I'm, each, I'm playing each of them against the person that's like behind them on this circle, like on the, on the opposite right. side of the circle. And then I'm playing one real game. So you have to remember six, How many moves did you have to remember at one time? Uh, there were, well, there were nine people. So I've got to remember four. Or four. I'm remembering four, playing those moves okay. on the other four. Now okay. that will result in a draw. It has to because... You're, for everyone you win, you're losing one, right? So that will be a draw. Right. And then there was one real game that I had to win, and then that tipped the um, that would tip it in my favour if I if I won. Otherwise, it could only be a draw. Did you win that one? I did, I did. And he was the weakest. Did, he you? was the weakest player, of oh, course. Um, poor little lad. So yeah, it's it's. Um, <laughs> That's so sad. Uh, it was a, it was a really fun thing, and actually that that method of how that was done it was kind of it was more. More fun was more kind of interesting than just simply, you know, winning the game. So that became, I explained it within the thing. This is how I'm, how I'm doing it. Does your brain ever get tired? Oh God, yeah, yeah. Actually, physically. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. I'm quite, I'm quite lazy. I like, I like just. I can't think anymore. I like being at home. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you're a home buddy. I see um, you're home with your, um, your dummy. Oh, you can see that. Now, yes. Who's he? So this is, I did a show called The The Push, which is also on Netflix. It was um, in a kind of Truman Show style that I do. You've got a guy who doesn't realise he's part of a big filming setup at a Mm -hmm. big high-blown party, high-flying, with lots of high-flyers, all of whom are actors. He doesn't know this. And it was to see whether you could get somebody just using compliance, social compliance, bit by bit to the point that they'd push someone off a building to kill kill somebody and they did there was at right? one point in it there's the uh, as an actor in it one of the actors is replaced by a dummy when we think he's died and then this this dummy has to be moved around and handled by the um by this main guy who doesn't realize he's being filmed who thinks it's he thinks he's hiding a dead body but i kept oh it as a souvenir God. so it's this it's this incredibly realistic it's just lying on your lying sofa. Lying on my sofa behind me, which is uh, visually, this is not going to be very strong for your listeners, I realise. But <laughs> no. it's um, an amazing he replica looks of dead. this. It looks completely dead. Or, or asleep. I forget that it's there. So people come into the house and they <laughs> kind of lower their voices because they think someone's asleep on the sofa. Yeah, that's rather creepy. It is creepy. But I'm, and it's I'm just behind it. me as we talk on whatever <laughs> this is, Zoom or something. <laughs> God, thank you so much for chatting with me, Darren. This has been so lovely. Thank you for having me on your uh, on your brand new exciting podcast. This is uh, such a treat. Thank you. Thank yeah, you. Thanks for coming. Awesome. 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 Oh, thanks, Darren. What a lovely man with such a brilliant mind. Oh, I can't believe him. He's amazing. Tickets for Darren's new stage show, Showman, are available now. Just follow the link in the show notes. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do rate us and review us on Apple Podcasts. That's the done thing nowadays, so, you know, get to it. And you can share it if you like it or tell a friend or whatever. I hope that it made you smile. And we can, I don't know, spread the smiles. Thanks to the producers Rich Willen and Sam Brown at Fascinate Productions. And of course, to everyone that listened. I'll see you again next week. Cheers. I want to say a massive thank you to our sponsors, Walida. These products really do make your skin feel amazing and smell totally lush. But it's just as important for me to choose brands that are the right choices for our planet. Walida really have led the way in terms of green beauty. And I don't mean like, you know, green lipstick and 
green blusher. I mean, they grow their own organic ingredients using sustainable farming practices that work in harmony with nature. They've been doing this since they began. That's almost a century ago. As you know, I'm an animal lover. So, of course, all their products are cruelty-free, totally. It's good to know they're looking out for the beagles and the bunnies. So head over to walida.co.uk to find out more. Alrighty, on with the show. <laughs> 